From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome. Thanks for being a part of the Washington Watch team. Well, coming up on this Tuesday edition, House Republican leaders are trying again to find a way forward to keep government operating while, at the same time, securing the southern border and cutting the government's deficit spending. So tonight we're back in session. We will vote on a rule to bring up four more appropriation bills. That'll be a total of five more than the Senate has been able to pass. Um, In that, if we get through these next four, that would be 72% of all the discretionary spending. I would also this week put on the floor a continuing resolution that secures our border. If the House succeeds, the question is, will the Senate and the president go along or will Democrats shut the government down? We'll get the latest on the negotiations from Virginia Congressman Bob Good. And as we discussed yesterday, the situation at the southern border is out of control. How sustainable is this, your ability to respond to this amount of people at the border? This isn't sustainable. This is uh, up and down the system. Uh, Everybody is overwhelmed. That was U.S. Border Patrol Chief Jason Owens' interview with ABC News correspondent Matt Rivers. Now, Customs and Border Protection announced late last Friday that roughly 232,000 migrants crossed the border in August. Now, that's a record for the calendar year and an increase of more than 20 percent over the month of July. So a key provision of any temporary government funding bill would include GOP border priorities. We're going to explore what those priorities are and why they're needed. And Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey is going on the offense in defending children from trans activists who are pushing experimental drugs and surgeries. Last Friday, General Bailey filed a lawsuit against the St. Louis Clinic for conducting transgender surgeries and treatments with, quote, no documented adequate comprehensive mental health assessments, end quote. That is a violation of state law. General Bailey joins us later here on Washington Watch. We're also going to take a closer look at President Biden's latest attack on the Second Amendment. He tapped Vice President Harris to lead the first ever White House Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Now, Vice President Harris had this to say at the Rose Garden event on Friday uh, after the new office was announced. With this new office, we will use the full power of the federal government to strengthen the coalition of survivors and advocates and students and teachers and elected leaders to save lives and fight for the right of all people to be safe from fear and to be able to live a life where they understand that they are supported in that desire and that right. Safe from fear? Uh, Maybe she should focus on the first job President Biden gave her, the border. I have a feeling she'll be more aggressive in taking guns from law-abiding citizens than she has been keeping lawbreakers out of the country. I'll be joined by former mayor of Cincinnati, Ken Blackwell, a little bit later to discuss that issue. And with election season approaching, attention again turns to election integrity. Are our election systems in better shape today than they were in 2020? We're going to talk about that as well. 
on this edition of Washington Watch. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Lots of resources there for you. Be sure and check it out. Our word for today comes from Romans chapter 2. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Well, the moral law of God is inscribed on the human heart. It was there before Mount Sinai, placed there at creation by the Creator. It is universal. That is why murder, theft, and adultery, among other things, are recognized as wrong with or without written laws. This moral law can be suppressed by our sin and choices. It can be ignored by our laws, but it cannot be repealed or vetoed by man. To find out more about our journey through the Bible, go to frc.org. Well, members of Congress returned to the U.S. Capitol today with a government shutdown scheduled for midnight Saturday if they don't achieve a budget agreement before then. Now, the House is uh, expected shortly to vote on a procedural vote. If that is adopted, they will then move to four of the remaining 11 appropriations bills. It is improbable that all 11 can be done before Saturday night, so a short-term funding mechanism will most likely be attempted before the end of the week. We're going to be joined in just a moment by uh, Congressman Bob Good, who's tied up um, on Capitol Hill. I'm going to go to one of our uh, Washington stand uh, writers to talk about another issue. I'm going to throw this in today. Uh, It's something we've been tracking, and that is the issue of uh, religious persecution. Uh, The United States under the Biden administration, I touched on this briefly yesterday, uh, has almost ignored this issue. In fact, we've seen a decline in the number of uh, individuals coming allowed to come to this country as a result of religious person persecution abroad. But uh, European politicians are shining a spotlight on this. Joining me now to talk about this, Sam McCarthy. He is a uh, writer with the Washington Stand. Sam, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks very much for having me on, Tony. So uh, tell us what happened last week in the European Parliament uh, on this issue as it pertains to religious freedom. Yeah, well, you had a Dutch MEP member of European Parliament, uh, Bert Jan Ressen, staged a display in conjunction with Open Doors and a Dutch organization for persecuted Christians, highlighting the rising global persecution of Christians. We're seeing this in countries like Nigeria, various portions of Africa. We're seeing it in India. We're seeing it, obviously, of course, with the Chinese Communist Party. And we're seeing it also in places like Nicaragua, where the Catholic Church has been particularly targeted. Uh, Ressin called on the EU to act in defense of persecuted Christians and not to stay silent on religious liberty. He and his party called on the European Commission to release a report, which they had previously promised, on enforcing religious liberty guidelines that the European Union had put in place 10 years ago, and they still haven't released a report on how that's being enforced, standardized, upheld, etc. Um, and he also asked to expand the Office of Commissioner of Religious Freedom, which is part of the European Commission. It was a new addition. It came in along with the implementation of those standards and guidelines on religious liberty. Uh, uh, Sam, is this a uh, final question for you? We got Congressman Good now. Um, yeah. is, is this an example of the vacuum that has been created because of the lack of leadership by the United States? 
Yes, it absolutely is. Under Biden, the U.S. State Department has essentially abdicated its responsibility to promote and protect religious liberty, both at home and abroad. That was something that under the previous administration was up, upheld, enforced, and it's something that under Biden has been essentially forgotten and swept under the rug. Yeah, yeah. so they, they can advance their abortion agenda, their LGBTQ agenda, and their climate agenda. Sam, thanks so much for, uh, for jumping in here today and uh, sharing that with us. And by the way, folks, uh, you can find out more about The Washington Stand. Go to TonyPerkins.com or TheWashingtonStand.com, and uh, you'll see more of Sam's articles and our other team of writers that uh, keep track of all of these things that uh, a lot in the legacy media ignore. All right. Joining me now is uh, Congressman Bob Good. He serves on the House Budget Committee, House Committee on Education and Workforce, and is a member of the House Freedom Caucus. He represents the 5th Congressional District of Virginia. Congressman Good, welcome back to the program. Afternoon, Tony. Good to be with you. I know you're busy. Uh, very fluid situation on, on Capitol Hill. As uh, we just laid out a few moments ago, a rule vote, procedural vote, then potentially moving toward four appropriations bills. Is that where we stand right now? Yes, we'll have one rule tonight for all four bills, but then we'll vote all four bills individually. We're going to have hundreds of amendments for all four bills. I think it's uh, nearly 500 amendments, which is how regular order is supposed to work, uh, where we get to make changes or, or suggest changes to the bills before we have to vote up or down. Sadly, and unfortunately, Tony, this should have happened months ago. We knew when September 30 was on the calendar, uh, the Speaker committed that we would pass our 12 individual appropriation bills, the first Congress to do that in some 20 years and uh, that we would do it at the pre-COVID spending levels for non-defense discretionary because of his uh, unwillingness to uh, drive that commitment, to lead the conference, to cast the vision. You've had some stops and starts and back and forth, and we haven't done that as we should have. And so we now find ourselves up against a deadline. But th this is progress. Uh, the fact that you're going to have these amendment votes on the floor, that's something we haven't seen in a long, long time. It is late progress that was unnecessary on the calendar. Right, right. I understand uh, however, that. However, to get four of them passed this week, which would bring us to five total, would be some progress. We ought to be able to complete this work by mid-October at the latest with minimal impact on the country from a shutdown standpoint. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The timing of it is inexcusable that we're down here to the wire at the last moment. But this, uh, the, the fact that you're having floor amendments on an appropriations bill is a part of the negotiations that took place back in January to allow for these open rules. Is that, isn't that correct? That's correct. That was forced on the Speaker in the negotiations back in January. We would not have had a return to regular order if we hadn't had the Speaker battle that we did from the 20 members who challenged that. And so it's been a reluctant change, but the change is in place. Uh, but uh, but we shouldn't be up on the uh, uh, on the deadline to September 30. We shouldn't right. be here now four right. days I, out doing it. But it but it is progress. Agree, agreed with that. But uh, there, the, sometimes progress comes painful, uh, painfully. So let's talk about is there a way forward? Do we see consensus beginning to build? Well, I will also add, Tony, that, that we are actually we, we've agreed to cut our spending this year by sixty four billion dollars uh, by what we're passing out of the House. That's an embarrassing, low, modest uh, objective, but at least it's historic because Congress never cut spending. Right. We've got a two trillion dollar deficit. So sixty four billion is not nothing, but it is but it is a small amount with that amount of deficit. Uh, and we finally got the speaker to agree to that last week. And uh, and then, you know, I, I think we can get that done the first week or two in October with minimal impact on the 15 percent of the government that is considered non-essential, that doesn't stay open when there's a pause to that level. I have said, Tony, that I would support a CR, a continuing resolution, a short-term funding bill that secured the border 
and cut even further for the month of October that went to the agreed upon levels from April and that the speaker agreed to back in January instead of the compromised levels. That's $115 billion annual savings or about $10 billion on a monthly savings that I would agree to that as long as we're moving our spending bills. But I'm not sure the votes are there to that effect. So how, how many votes do you think you're short to, uh, of arriving at consensus on that? Well, I think we might be short as many as as close to 10 on that. But what wow. I fear will happen, Tony, is that moderate and liberal Republicans in the House and the Senate will join with Democrats and pass an unconditional CR or even more than the 30 days. As a matter of fact, the speaker is now beginning to back off on the spending levels and back off on the timeline and talking about a 45-day spending level, uh, excuse me, a continuing resolution instead of 30 days. And he's not talking about going back to the pre-COVID levels for that that was agreed to this just Wednesday night when we had our last conference meeting. So, you know, we need consistency. We need the speaker to leave. We need him to challenge the moderates who support him for speaker to support him in this so we can send the strongest bill possible to the Senate, right. which gives us a stronger but leverage position in negotiations. We're up against a break here, uh, Congressman Good, Can you stick around for just a couple more minutes because I got a couple more questions for you uh, on this. I, I, at some point, the conservatives have to realize, look, I've got the best deal I can get. Uh, let's let's go with it. I mean, do you think you can bring your colleagues along to that point? Well, we, the main thing is to get the spending bills done. And again, it's the speaker's fault that we haven't done that before the end of September 30. So uh, to have to take a week or two in October to do it, we don't want to relieve the pressure of right. the moment and the deadline. And then we go from a 30 day to a 45 day to a 60 day and Agreed. it doesn't cut spending. That's the history, Tony. Right. And I, so I my colleagues are concerned about us repeating that. We don't need a Republican majority to do that. Bob, can you stick around? We can stick around for okay. one, one more. Yes. All right. Don't go away, folks. We're coming right back with more with Congressman Bob Good in just a moment. Today, more than ever, men need a reminder of what biblical manhood looks like and to understand God's good design for them, to serve as provider, instructor, battle buddy, defender, and chaplain. They need a battle plan to truly live out their role. Family Research Council's Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin and Dr. Keenan Kirtan's book, Strong and Courageous, a sequel to Man to Man, offers this battle plan so that men can pursue their God-given responsibility in a culture quickly turning away from God's design. The authors unpack the Old Testament book of Joshua as the focus of their study, asking readers to look to his leadership to help consider and apply the key principles of biblical manhood. It's time for men to accept their role in the family and community and truly embrace their God-given purpose. To order your copy of Strong and Courageous, A Call to Biblical Manhood, go to frc.org slash strongandcourageous. Again, that's frc.org slash strongandcourageous. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clausen, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be disciples 
discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. Good to have you with us on this uh, Tuesday. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right. Uh, A part of the continuing resolution discussion is to attach to that uh, provisions that the Republicans had put forward on the border, protecting the border. We were talking about this yesterday, mentioned at the top of the program. The situation at the southern border is simply out of control. Uh, In August... According to the Customs and Border Protection, 232,000 migrants came across the border in August, a record for the calendar year, and an increase of more than 25% over July. Now, what is contained within these provisions that would be attached to a temporary government funding bill, uh, and why are they needed? Sticking around with us, uh, Congressman Bob Good of Virginia. All right, all right, Bob. Let me just ask you this: On the, I think this is, this is needed. I mean, we're seeing the the media is is actually starting to finally report the crisis at the border. What are the provisions that would be attached to any kind of temporary funding bill uh, in terms of addressing the border situation? To your point, Tony, that uh, that these blue cities in New York and so forth, these blue states are starting to suffer greater consequence because of the border. And so now you're having a more difficult time for the mainstream media to to uh, uh, to to fail to cover or to try to cover up for the Biden border failure. This is intentional on his part. Uh, and what the provisions would be is H.R. 2, our border security bill, which would complete the wall. It would reinstate the remain in Mexico policy, which means those with asylum claims have to wait in Mexico for their case to be heard, 90 percent of which are fraudulent, of course. And, you know, if Mexico knows they're going to have to keep these illegal uh, aliens in their country until their asylum claim is heard, then Mexico all of a sudden gets serious about their own southern border rather than holding these individuals in their country. And folks learn that the jig is up and they stop coming in the mass uh, numbers. It also reinstates a detain or return policy, meaning individuals have to be detained at the border or return to their home country. There's no more catch and release into the interior of the country at taxpayer expense. So those kind of basic provisions that were working on the Trump administration right. would be included in the continuing resolution that I have agreed to and that Speaker McCarthy at least spoke to back Wednesday night when we had our last conference so, meeting. Those are not theoretical policy provisions. They actually worked 
during the Trump administration. So it's That's just, right. And we've seen this escalation of border crossings and, and crime. And I, I do think you're absolutely right. What has this before the uh, legacy media and blue city mayors that are screaming. I find it a little comical. These sanctuary cities are screaming now that people actually took them up on, you know, their virtue signaling of being sanctuary cities. To your point, it was theoretical before, and now it's reality. And they're getting just a little taste of what the border states and border communities are suffering under. And their own citizens are rising up and saying, you can't continue to do this. You're not taking care of own, our own citizens in need, uh, legal Americans who are here, obviously, and our citizens. And yet we're going to be spending $150 billion a year currently uh, on our immigration, our illegal immigration to this country with no end in sight by this administration. So those provisions, they get onto a temporary funding bill, 30 days also cuts spending, as you talked about. Uh, does the uh, does the, the Democrat-controlled Senate and the White House agree to it, or did they shut down government over it? Uh, well, great question. But the House is responsible, as you know, for what we do. And that's why we should pass the strongest funding bill. We should have passed the amount that we agreed to back in January and in April that all Republicans voted for uh, to strengthen our negotiating hand and end with the border security here, because that you know that anything that comes back from the Senate is going to be worse. They're not going right. to try to make anything better. They want to spend more money than Senate Democrats don't want to secure the border, of course. And then you end up into a conference committee where you negotiate something that, uh, you know, maybe we can vote for, maybe we cannot. Uh, what the best we can do. So you've got to have a good bill to, bill to start with, good policy to start with. You've got to be strong and resolved in your negotiating skills. And for once, let's have Republicans win in the negotiations instead of Democrats, as always happens. I, I agree. You should never go into the negotiations waving a white flag, which is what historically Republicans... Or passing what we think the Democrats and the Senate and the White House will agree to. That right. would be terrible if we do that out of the House. Uh, I agree 100 percent. Congressman Bob Good, always great to see you. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today and for uh, fighting for those conservative principles on Capitol Hill. Thank you, Tony. Great to be with you. And, and folks, uh, you need to weigh in on this. I, I do think that the conservatives are driving a, a good deal by cutting spending, attaching these provisions to any kind of temporary uh, funding bill. And so I would encourage you to call your member of Congress and your senators. Uh, the switchboard, 202-224-3121, 202-224-3121. All right, I, I've covered uh, on Washington Watch uh, several times. Missouri is one of 20 states with legislation to protect minors from permanent, irreversible gender procedures. Now, this is something that uh, the Family Research Council got behind a few years ago, first state, Arkansas, being the ones, one of the ones to adopt it. Now these have spread across the country. Well, despite these laws, which a uh, federal court recently upheld, a Missouri health care provider continued providing these medical interventions without conducting the mental health assessments required by the state law there in Missouri. They're now subject to a lawsuit that seeks full restitution for the victims, civil penalties for each violation and an injunction uh, to halt further such violations. Uh, joining me now to discuss this is uh, Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey. General Bailey, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me on. All right, I, I'm just going to give you a warning up front. We only got about 30 seconds left, and we're going to come back in the next segment. Uh, but you are going on the offense here. Why? 
Well, it's important to continue to fight to protect children. In this instance, you're right. These kids are victims of a system. They were defrauded. They were told they were getting health care, and yet were deprived of necessary mental health assessments and evaluations and mental health services that the uh, defendant's own experts acknowledged they needed. And so that's why it's so important to continue to fight to press the suit forward to hold wrongdoers accountable. Well, I'll just say this before we go to the break, uh, General Bailey, having authored and passed a number of pieces of legislation, including one of the nation's uh, first abortion clinic regulation acts, passing the law is just not even half of the process. It actually is the enforcement that matters. And having an attorney general like you enforcing these laws makes all the difference in the world. We're going to talk about the, uh, the lawsuit and the ACLU and Lambda Legal criticizing you after uh, we come back from this break. Folks, uh, again, the Capitol switchboard number 202-224-3121. It's a uh, busy day here in Washington, D.C., very fluid, as you can tell by the program. But stick with us. We're going to come back and continue our conversation with the Attorney General of Missouri, Andrew Bailey, who is aggressively fighting to protect children in his state. It's encouraging. Don't go away. We're back with more after this. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Have you seen the Now We Live series? It is a six-week worldview Bible study created in partnership with Family Research Council and Summit Ministries. This video series was put together to help Christians propel faith into action. It offers six free videos to prompt rich discussions about some of life's most foundational questions among churches, small groups, and families. Each video is led by well-known Christian voices and addresses questions regarding worldview, Jesus, truth, identity, and society. It's so important for Christians to both know the truth and to live in a way that is compatible with the truth. Being grounded in what is true and living out God's grace allows a believer's faith to truly transform one's own life and ultimately help transform a broken world. Equip yourself and other Christians to learn more about what it means to truly hold a biblical worldview. Access this important series by going to frc.org slash worldview. Again, go to frc.org slash worldview. All right, as we were uh, talking before we went to the break with the Attorney General of uh, Missouri, on Friday, uh, General Bailey filed a suit against Southampton Community Health Care Incorporated for providing gender transition Interventions such as puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones to minors without a comprehensive mental health assessment, which is required by state law 
Um, this was uh, before the Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act went into effect following a massive legal win by his office last month. Now, the uh, attorneys, I think it was ACLU of Missouri and Lambda Legal, which represents Southampton Community Healthcare, uh, said in a joint statement that Bailey's actions are about nothing more than erasing transness, transness from Missouri while he allows the top causes of child mortality to run rampant throughout the state. We will fight this desperate overreach. Well, joining me now, General Bailey. Uh, General, thanks for sticking around. So um, fill in the blanks here. Uh, This is the law. How do do they think they can just get away with uh, violating the law and someone's not going to do something about it? That's exactly right. I'm proud to live in a state where our our General Assembly passed and our governor signed into law a statute to protect children from sterilization. Never mind the fact that Lambda Legal and the ACLU in Southampton sued the state of Missouri. We are the defendants. We filed a counterclaim because their own experts at trial, when we were defending the statute, admitted that the, the accepted standard of care is that kids should receive mental health assessments. Now, I reject that this is care at all. There is no health care about it. But if their own experts are saying that kids should be getting these mental health services, then I have evidence that contradicts that they were actually doing that. And so now we're going to hold wrongdoers accountable. They put a marker down, and we're going to hold them accountable to that marker. Uh, at the end of the day, we were successful in our defend- defense of the statute, the first state in the nation to successfully right. defend the statute from legal attack at the trial court level. And now we're going to go back on offense and use their own uh, testimony against them. So that statute is now in place. Yes, sir. As of August 28th, thanks to our defense at the trial court level. And it, and that is the law of Missouri, and they have to abide by that law. What are the penalties for violating this law? Well, first and foremost, we can use the Missouri Merchandising Practices Act to go after businesses that are violating state statute. But also, I would point out that uh, mental, uh, excuse me, uh, healthcare professionals who are administering this kind of uh, questionable experimentation can be held account- accountable by the professional licensure boards. Uh, there are other uh, legal remedies that, that can be used to go after these types of clinics, but I think the strongest and most potent medicine here is the fact that there's an individual civil cause of action with a 15-year statute of limitations, because what we know is that a lot of the times the, the negative healthcare implications, the negative uh, reaction uh, that the human body uh, faces after undergoing these procedures doesn't materialize in the, in the normal statute of limitations. Right. So there needs to be right. extra time it, so these victims can bring their claims. And right. empowering the victims to have a voice in the process is one of the strongest remedies that our state has provided and is a model for other states. I, I, I agree with that. The the interesting thing about this, General, and, and in your investigation, you, you spearheaded the investigation there in, in the state, um, normal procedures such as the mental health assessments, which would normally be done before other types of treatment would have been administered, were absent in this case. It's like it, when it comes to transgender interventions, we throw the, the guidebook out the window. Yeah, they broke all the rules in their race to sterilize children and break up families and harm kids. And that's why we're fighting so hard against this. Uh, You're absolutely right. Our expert at trial questioned that very same thing, said, why is it that in no other situation in which you have a diagnosable mental health condition, would you ever race to hormonal treatments, especially when there's no science or medicine to prove that those are safe or effective? And yet that's exactly what we do in this instance. But again, the plaintiffs, ACLU and Lambda Legal, it was their experts who opined and testified that there should have been mental health assessments. Well, the evidence that we have is that these clinics were not providing those mental health assessments. They didn't live up to their own standards. 
What else did you uncover in your investigation of the way these clinics that are, are operating when it comes to uh, these interventions that they're taking on uh, transgenderism that were outside the norm of medical practices? Well, a few other frightening details that we uncovered were, number one, that oftentimes the parents weren't actually given informed consent. It was nothing short of coercion. That The evidence we have is that some of the uh, patients, uh, the, the clinics would target the parent most likely to acquiesce to demands for consent and that they were uh, told things like, do you want a live son or a dead daughter? And that, uh, that therefore the clinic was injecting a suicidal ideation into a conversation that didn't exist before. That's not healthy, helping children with mental health conditions. That's making it worse. Uh, and again, that is uh, not, doesn't meet the legal definition of cons informed consent. That's coercion. And that's why uh, the, the, the evidence that we've uncovered is so frightening and, and why it's so important to continue on the offense to uncover the wrongdoing and hold wrongdoers accountable. Well, I appreciate, uh, General, you setting an example for other states, Missouri, and in, in many ways leading the country uh, on this issue and very grateful for your work in protecting uh, children and the rights of parents not to be coerced, to be, be uh, forced into allowing their children to be experimented on. Uh, always great to see you, General. Thank you, sir. All the best to you. Thank you, General Andrew Bailey of uh, Missouri. You know, it is encouraging to see uh, the progress that's being made there in Missouri. As he said, their SAFE Act litigated successfully in place. Other states still uh, litigating. For instance, Arkansas, the first one that was actually passed, uh, is being still being litigated. But you have to have elected officials willing to enforce the law. And that's where attorney generals come in. Uh, they, 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 they are so important. So grateful for uh, General Bailey. All right, when we come back, we're going to take a look at President Biden, his uh, latest attack on the Second Amendment with his gun grab. He has made uh, the vice president, Kamala Harris, I guess she's going to be the gun czar now. Who knows? Ken Blackwell joins me here in studio. After the break, don't go away. More Washington Watch straight ahead. Are you prepared to pray, vote, and stand for biblical truth? It is imperative that Christians pray for their community and culture to steward their role as a citizen by voting and to stand for biblical truth. This means that Christians must be intentional about seeking after the Lord in all things. You can join Family Research Council and FRC Action President Tony Perkins in this mission as he hosts the Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to inspire brothers and sisters in Christ to turn their attention to the Lord first and in every compartment of their lives. Tony is joined by experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders for this weekly half-hour program to help you see through the fog created by the biased mainstream media. Watch the Pray, Vote, Stand weekly broadcasts and commit to pray for our nation, to stand for truth, and to seek the Lord first. Just go to PrayVoteStand.org. Again, that's PrayVoteStand.org.
Tech censorship is on the rise. Big tech companies are attempting to cancel conservatives and Christians, which is why here at Family Research Council, we've decided to be proactive so that big tech cannot silence us completely. FRC has a text subscription platform to be sure we can continue to keep you in the loop. That way you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. You can get FRC's content straight to your phone. Just sign up for our text alerts by texting STAND to 67742. Again, you simply text STAND to 67742, and FRC will send you special alerts on the issues that matter to you. By subscribing, you'll also be one of the first to know about our upcoming events and programs. All of this info is yours with just a simple text. You'll have access to content that will help you continue to stand for faith, family, and freedom. And you'll know about opportunities to connect with like-minded communities. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Finding a quality news source today in this media-saturated world can be incredibly difficult. It is important to stay informed on what is going on in the world, but you need a news source you can trust. That is why Family Research Council created The Washington Stand, an online news platform with a mission to provide readers with free, factual news stories, and commentaries all from a biblical worldview. Based in Washington, D.C., our reporters provide reliable information on the most crucial issues of the day, ranging from breaking news on the hottest Supreme Court decisions to details on the latest public education stories, updates to domestic and international religious liberty cases, and more. We want you and your family to stay informed on what is happening in the world that affects faith, family, and freedom. Be encouraged. Be in the know. And stand firm in truth by visiting WashingtonStand.com today. That's WashingtonStand.com. FRC celebrating 40 years with Ambassador Sam Brownback. FRC is a unique institution. I see that FRC's role going forward becomes even more important. Because the culture has moved so aggressively against a traditional set of values. And we're not talking about imposing values on anybody. We're talking about allowing people to practice values. And that's what what FRC has stood for. That's what it's standing for. That's what it will stand for in the future and why its role is just so critical. That was our good friend Sam Brownback, former governor of Kansas, former senator, and uh, ambassador at large for religious freedom. I had a chance to work with him in uh, all of those capacities. Well, last week at a Rose Garden ceremony, President Biden announced the establishment of a new White House office mm-hmm, of gun violence prevention. Prevention. Now, press off her run as borders are, Vice President Kamala Harris was tapped to take the helm of this new bureaucracy, that according to friendly news reports, she'll work closely with non-governmental anti-gun organizations. While this White House runs out of answers for confronting crime and lawlessness, they target law-abiding citizens. That's right. Joining me now to discuss this and more, Ken Blackwell, Special Advisor for Election Integrity at FRC Action. He previously served as mayor of Cincinnati, as well as treasurer and secretary of state of the Buckeye State, Ohio. Ken, welcome back to Washington Watch. Hey, Tony, good to be with you. So, um, the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. <laughs> I mean, if she does anything like she did in the border, we don't have anything to worry about, but I have a feeling she's going to be more focused on taking guns away from law-abiding citizens than keeping lawbreakers from coming into the country. 
just as this administration has attacked the First Amendment, it's getting ready to attack the Second Amendment. And Tony, you as a former police officer, you know this. Uh, in our major uh, urban cities uh, across this country, police response time has gone sky high. Yeah. And as a consequence, when you have an administration talking about taking guns from law-abiding citizens and at the same time not doing anything to seal our border and having guns come across, illegal guns come across uh, and find their way into the hands of criminals, what they have done is, in fact, put a target on community safety, neighborhood safety across the country. Right. And, and government's first responsibility is to provide a safe environment for its citizens. And you don't make them safe by disarming them. I, absolutely not. I, mean, I, I, w I was looking at, uh, you mentioned the border and, and crime. I was looking at some reports. Uh, a 2021 Department of Justice report revealed that 64% of federal arrests in 2018 involved non-citizens, despite the fact that they only comprised 7% of the population at the time. Now, the DOJ has not provided any additional information or reports uh, covering that since the Biden administration, but all of the, uh, the evidence suggests that that's skyrocketing given the individuals that are coming across our border. Yes, Tony, and, and you know as well as I do, there are criminals who are brutalizing citizens yeah. and yeah. getting arrested and getting right out of jail. Right, right, right. You know, that, I mean, we're talking about, I'm, I'm just looking at Sheet Heritage uh, put out a list of uh, these, some of these crimes by illegal immigrants. Um, you know, beheadings. I mean, you've got the, uh, the gangs coming in from Central and South America. I mean, this is, and as you said, they're, 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 they're being released. They're being released. And, and look, when I was uh, in local government in Cincinnati, we were fighting back in the 80s, MS-13. Right. You know, right. And, and, and while the Trump administration, for the first time, got a hold of it. They did. And, you know. I, I was looking at the numbers of uh, not just border crossings, but crime related to that. Mm -hmm. And it, it was almost extinguished during the Trump administration with it took them a while. I mean, they mm -hmm. had a few uh, false starts. Uh, they finally got, to, you know, got Chad Wolf uh, to head up uh, Homeland Security. And, and they were they were working. They had policies that working. Remain in Mexico was working. I was there before and after. Mm -hmm. Second time down there it was like a ghost town. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's just ridiculous. Uh, and we, in fact, as citizens, must put a stop okay. to this nonsense. So let's talk a little bit about the provisions of the, uh, the gun grab. What, what, what are they looking to do? Well, essentially, they're, they're talking about, and Biden has said it before, you know, he, he's, he's very much concerned about the caliber of guns, and, and, and essentially what he's, what he's talking about doing is do buyback programs, uh, and, and, it, and it's, a real, it's, a, it's a real problem because they're, they're targeting innocent right. law-abiding There's only people. so much he can do, though. Because Congress has to to enact. So is this more of just using the bully pulpit to to push his anti-gun message? Well, what this administration does is that they they test the resolve of Congress. Right. Yeah, that's true. You know, they'll, they'll they'll take the guns and say, let's see what you do about it, and, and and hope that they can stall it around in in the court system. So do you do you see like the NRA and others maybe challenging some of the steps that this new office might take? Yeah, and I, I tell you, there are a number of. Uh, uh, groups across this country that are basically saying we're not going to surrender uh, to the thugs and criminal elements in our in our country, and we're not going to let this administration that's soft on crime uh, put us in jeopardy 
uh, our families in jeopardy, uh, and um, th th we have to push back. You know, I, as I always say, Frederick Douglass said it best, those who are whooped easiest are whooped most often, True. and we, in fact, got to step it up. Well, look, I, I, I am a strong believer in the Second Amendment, and having, you know, been a police officer, as you mentioned, having been in the military and the Marine Corps, first off, I think as a, uh, I think it's my duty to protect my family. That's right. Uh, law enforcement is kind of the second line of defense. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, because of the demoralization and the departures that are taking place in law enforcement, primarily driven by the left's defund the police, police. move, mm -hmm. uh, response times have, have, as you said, have skyrocketed. And, and, and they're not being as aggressive in policing for fear of something happening and it being turned on them. Yeah, and this is all part of this administration's uh, thrust to make a muscular administrative state uh, and, in fact, it, it's authoritarianism. Yeah. That's what they're that, – they want to concentrate power in the administrative state that they control. When the, the beauty of this country has been in the decentralization of power and the respect of individual rights and responsibilities, uh, and the same administration that is trying to drive God out of the public square is trying to take guns from law-abiding citizens – when the first responsibility, as you said, in de defending us are ourselves. They, they have a problem with G's, God, <laughs> guns, and girls. They're trying to eliminate girls, too, with all this trans agenda. All right, uh, let's, let's transition here to the issue of elections because this ties right into it. The way we solve this is elections. Going back to 2020, a lot of concerns about the integrity of our election system. Uh, systems, I should say, mm -hmm. because every state That's has right. a different one. It's just the way we want it. We don't right. want a universal right. system that can be corrupted and manipulated. So where do we stand going into another major election, presidential election? Have we seen um, work done that restores integrity in our election systems? Yeah, Tony, I, this is where I say it's, it's very basic. If you if you if you're not in the room, you're not in the game, which means that we as individual citizens have to have to engage. Uh, and so we have to recruit folks at the precinct level. There are 3,100 counties and, and hundreds of thousands of precincts, and that's where elections take place. And we have to make sure that there are people who are engaged, their eyes on the system, that the chain of custody of our ballots uh, happen to be reduced to the barest number. Uh, and that there are verification systems that make sure the people who, who are, are who they claim to be. But this administration is attacking citizenship. Uh, they, in fact, are creating, like in New York and Pennsylvania, automatic voter registration where, in fact, they take away the freedom of people to make a choice as to whether or not they want to be registered. Now, we encourage people to get registered, but one of the... Well, but the problem, the, one of the problems with the automatic registration is if someone really doesn't want to vote... But it allows for someone to vote illegally yeah. for them. Oh, absolutely. And, and again, they are giving these illegals uh, driver's license. Right. You know, uh, there's really relaxed verification in, in, in some jurisdictions. So an illegal can, in fact, be encouraged to vote. Yeah. Even though they're not a citizen, it's a part of a destruction of citizenship. And we, and we, got, we, have, we have to push back neighbor to neighbor, church member to church member, family member to family member. So we have to engage. We're going to talk about uh, some of the specific 
provisions that have been made in some of the states. But I want you mentioned New York. I want to play a clip from the mayor. Uh, I'm sorry, the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul. Um, she signed a package to what she said, strengthen democracy and protect voting rights. Clip number 10. 29 states have already passed over 100 voter suppression laws. They're not doing what we would do here in New York, which is expand and bring more people to the process and empower them. They're stripping away these rights. They're doing the exact opposite of what needs to happen. Well, I, I tell you, we we live in two worlds. We do. <laughs> I mean, she's talking about, as you said, they're allowing non-citizens to vote. Uh, look, right in New York, as New York City, uh, we there's litigation now because what they basically said is that uh, non-citizens uh, can vote in municipal elections. If, in fact, they vote in municipal elections and they show how that— are you gonna, How are you going to keep them from it, It's a destruction of citizenship. Right. But I want to go to what she's saying. <laughs> 29 states have, in her words, using her words, voter suppression. Let me interpret that for you. That is, they have returned integrity to their election system. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So, so that's why I want to f- focus on, because a lot of folks out there can, and you hear it, because you're mm-hmm. actually uh, spearheading a coalition of uh, organizations working on election integrity. People are saying, you know, I don't know if my vote counts. Um, there's still problems. I mean, you just saw one of the problems right there from New York. But state legislatures have been responding and have been kind of plugging the gaps that were exposed in that very unique, perfect storm in 2020 with COVID and the presidential election. Yeah, uh, we, we, we have made progress. In, in 2020, there were a lot of polling places uncovered. Uh, this coalition that you talk about uh, that I'm engaged in, we go out, we recruit citizens at the precinct level. We train them working through their uh, local uh, non-governmental organizations and their and their and their parties, and we in fact put eyeballs on the system. We make sure that the system is transparent, and and, and people are engaged. So, 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 so the laws the laws only work if you've got people there that That's right. make sure they're enforced. <laughs> That's right. So we've got reforms that have taken place, but that does not excuse you know, John Q. citizen from being involved, being a poll watcher and keeping their eyes on what's unfolding. You're absolutely right, Tony. You know, as I crisscross the the, the country, we we have to realize that uh, in 2020, I'll just use three states, uh, Georgia, Wisconsin and Arizona. Uh, The election was determined by less than 100,000 votes in those three states, which, in fact, gave Biden you know, oh. a, a, a electoral college win. Uh, so things are within the margin of litigation right. uh, and close. And so we have to be involved uh, and we have to be involved. We have to vote. We have to vote, too. We have to vote. Yeah, I mean, we are in such a narrowly divided country. I mean, we really are. Every election is, is, is very close when you actually, as you just pointed out, you look at the actual numbers. Mm-hmm. And so, number one, uh, we need to be vigilant, mm-hmm. and, and we can never rest. I'm just going to say, we, we live in a country and a culture now that we cannot rest. We cannot stand on the sideline. We've got to be on the field. Right. So we've got to be voting. We've got to continue to look for the vulnerabilities in our election systems and state by state address those and change those. We've done a lot of that, but it is an ongoing process. process. 
elections are human enterprises. Uh, there are uh, some vulnerabilities in the system. It's, it's just going to happen. Uh, and then there are opportunities for fraud. We, in right. fact, got we, we to put hands on and eyes on that process and stop the, the, the fraud. And, it, and it's happening. But we have to be engaged. We have to use that agency that God has invested in us. Uh, we're not subjects. Right. And you, as you and I talk about all the time, we are citizens, and part of citizenship responsibility is engaged and utilizing your individual freedom. So, Ken Blackwell, let me ask you a question with this narrative that I think is being fueled by some, some out of legitimate concern about voter integrity. But are there others that are exploiting that concern as a means of voter suppression to try to keep conservatives from voting by making them think their vote doesn't matter? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, it's coming two ways. One, they're overloading the system with illegals and opportunities for fraud. Uh, and they, in fact, have advanced narratives that depress and suppress. And so our, our, yeah. our responsibility is to, in fact, say, inspire hope and, and engagement. But it's to ignore those voices yeah. that are out there and do what we know is our duty to do as as citizens and as as Christians in this culture. We have to be engaged. Yeah, we have to be engaged uh, very quickly. Ken, we're, we're up against the end of the program. But how can people find out about joining this coalition to be a part of maybe being a poll watcher and getting the training? Well, one one of the things that we're doing, we're working with uh, FRC Action. And so come right right to us, the America First Policy Institute, Heritage Action, and one of my programs is the uh, that I engage with is Honest Elections Project. All right, we'll have a link for that uh, on the website. Yeah. Ken, thanks for All being right. here. Always good to be with you, Tony. Folks, remember that capital switchboard number, 202-224-3121. That will get you to your congressman and your senators on all things congressional. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul, found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you've taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.